0: This morning we are going to begin a mini series. Okay, two weeks. In, in 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 just a couple of weeks, it'll be Easter. It'll be uh, Resurrection Sunday, and and leading up to that, I want to share uh, a couple of sermons. I had planned to share three, and and I got sick and missed a Sunday. And it's hard to preach from the house in the bed when you when you can't get up. So uh, so. I, I've I've condensed them into two, and they're and they're not they're not long ones and 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 so this morning I, we're going to begin our sermon and I'm just calling it the passion of the Christ and when I say that the passion of the Christ what comes to your mind? A movie. Mel Gibson, right? In fact, if you ask most people that, that's exactly probably what they would say. But passion, that word, passion, there it it's it, it Mel Gibson didn't come up with that in fact, next Sunday begins what much of the church calls passion week it's it passion is is it comes from the Greek word Paskin, which means suffering and to, traditionally the suffering of jesus the the week of suffering begins on Palm Sunday and it ends on Friday evening. Uh, with his death, it's called the Passion Week, and so we're going to look at the word "passion." It, it means pain, or it, it literally, it means suffering. Is what it means, and the Passion of Christ is is literally the suffering of Christ. And so, for the next couple of weeks, we're just going to break, take a break from from everything, and we're going to focus on the suffering of Jesus. We're going to su- we're going to focus on just the last few hours. We're not going we're not going to talk about Palm Sunday and and all the trips into the temple and that kind of thing. We're literally we're gonna we're gonna talk from that point where they have the Passover on Friday evening, and then he leaves and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're gonna look at the Garden today, and then next week we're gonna look at the trials that took place uh, after he was arrested, and we'll finish up. Uh, next Sunday, with with the crucifixion, the trials, and the crucifixions. But I, I want us to to look at the panoramic picture that's painted there. It's all of this is is in all four gospels. It's painted very very clearly and very graphically, and, and I hope it will help us to better appreciate what Jesus has done personally for each of us. This is this is one of those times when we, we 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 just kinda even though we're a body we can kind of pull apart and just contemplate what Jesus did for me. He did it for us. But we need to make it personal. Okay? He did it for me. He did it for you. Jesus came to suffer and he came to die for our sin. He came to give his life as a ransom for ours. He came to make atonement for us. He came literally to become sin for us. He didn't just suffer for sin folks. I don't understand this, okay? I, I can't preach this because I can't grasp this. But He didn't just suffer for our sins. While He was on that cross, He became our sin. Okay? That's what Scripture teaches. I don't understand that. But we need to grapple with it. We need to wrestle with it a little bit. He did that so that we could have His righteousness, the righteousness of God. He took our sins and gave us the righteousness of God. So without the passion of the Christ, without the suffering of the Christ, there's no forgiveness and there's no redemption for sin. And so this week I want us to just look at the garden and what took place in the garden because there's there's some interesting things that that happened there and, and there's some very meaningful things that happened there. and So today I've just called this agony in the garden. Next week I want to look, like I said, at, at, the, at the crucifixion and at the trials Jesus went through. Now I'm going to give you some history. I'm going to give you some, some, some geography. I mean, I, I, want, I, I don't want us just to listen to what Jesus did. I want us to walk with Jesus through this. I want us to, to be one of those disciples that was there? You say, well, they were all asleep. Well, we know they were, but hopefully we won't, okay? I want us just to kind of walk through that. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in, in any particular area, but we know that, that Jesus met with his disciples to celebrate Passover. Passover typically took place and was eaten around 6 p.m. And we, we begin our days with mourning. Right? The morning and then the evening. The Jewish people begin their days evening and morning. You say, well, how, where did they get that? Well, if you go back to Genesis, you will find that, that over and over and over it says there was evening and there was morning. The first day. There was evening, there was morning. The second day. All the way through. The Jewish people reckon time using a lunar calendar. We reckon time, most of the world does, using a solar calendar. So they began their day at 6 p.m. in the evening, and it would end at 6 p.m. the next evening, and you would have a day. And so we, we come to the Passover, and it's probably about, 16, about 6 p.m., and so what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks took place... More or less, in eighteen hours or so. I don't know how long the Passover lasted. Okay, I, I, I don't have a clue how long they were in the upper room, how long it took them to travel from there down to the Garden of Gethsemane. But you know, in, in round numbers, probably about eighteen hours is is really the, the 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 duration of of how Christ suffered and when he suffered. Uh, that. 6 p.m. meal would have equated to our Thursday evening. Most of you have heard of Maldi, I think it's Maldi, if I'm not saying it right. It's, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in a church that celebrated Maldi Thursday, but that was, but a lot of churches do. And it, it's, it's Thursday evening, and so they took the Passover, they celebrated the Passover, they, uh, and during that meal Jesus uh, instituted what we know as communion, the Lord's Supper. At the end of the meal, He, he, he offered the cup and, and the bread and He talked about His body and about His, his blood, uh, His broken body and His blood. And so they celebrated that final Passover. Jesus celebrated it with all His disciples. Even Judas was there, who in just a few hours would betray Jesus with a kiss. And then it says, after the meal, Matthew tells us in Matthew twenty-six thirty that they, after singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Now, for those of you that have been to Israel, you can see what I'm describing. When you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look, I've got to get my, yeah, you look east. I've got to get east and west, north and south, right, okay? When you look east, it's, there's the Temple Mount. There's Jerusalem. Okay? The Mount of Olives is here. Then there's the Kidron Valley here. And right up another hill is Mount Zion. There that that's that's Jerusalem. And so if you stand on, on the Mount of Olives, you can see you can see you can see Jerusalem. You can see the Temple Mount. You can you can see the you can just see everything. Okay? It's a spectacular view. Now in Jesus' day, if you go there today, there's a cemetery. There's a Jewish cemetery on the Mount of Olives and there's an Arab cemetery on, on Mount Zion. The Arabs buried there because they don't believe that the Messiah will cross the cemetery to go through the eastern gates. Just listen to me. He's going to cross it. Okay? And those eastern gates, even though they're shut, will open up when the king comes. okay? Graves are not going to keep the king out. All right, That's not part of my sermon, but Anyway. But it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spectacular view today. And I can't imagine what it must have been like in Jesus' day because the Mount of Olives would have been covered with olive trees. That's why it's called Mount Olivet. Okay, it's, it's the olive thicket, the olive orchard. And so they would have come, Jesus would have probably led his disciples from the upper room out the Essene Gate, which if if you're standing on the Mount of Olives looking at Jerusalem, it would have been to your left, and he he would have come around, and he they would have probably hung close to the wall, and they would have gone to very close to the Eastern Gate, which is how you would have, you would go up into the temple. They would have gone there, and they would have begun to descend a path. It's called the Snake Path, and it just it winds like this down Mount Zion. Into the across the Kidron uh, Valley, across the brook, and into the the, the the olive groves. We would call that the Garden of Gethsemane today. And so they would have wound their way down. It was night time, and they would have uh, descended across the Kidron Valley and into Gethsemane, which was located at the bottom of the slope of of the Mount of Olives. If you go there today, uh, and you, you, there's a church. It's called the Church of All Nations. And there's an olive grove beside the church. In fact, there are a couple. But there are some trees there that are literally 2,000 years old. Okay? They are monstrous. They're not real tall, but they're—I mean, you can't reach around them. And inside the church there's a, there's a stone. I mean, it's a rock outcropping. And that's where most, uh, most people believe that Jesus prayed. That's the rock that he falls on that Scripture talks about. And so Jesus took his disciples and they went that night after they had celebrated the Passover, after Jesus had washed their feet, after they had had the first communion, after Judas had left and gone into the night, they left Jerusalem and wound their way into this garden area. Now, this was probably a place that Jesus knew very well. This is where they typically spent the night when they came to Jerusalem. Every male was required to come to three festivals in Jerusalem, no matter where they lived in, in, in Israel. And so he came three times a year at least. And so this was where they would spend their night. He didn't go to the holiday inn. Okay. He spent the night, they spent the night and they camped and uh and it was it was a place that was quiet. And we know this from, from Luke chapter 21, verse 37. It says, Now during the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple. But at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, or literally the hill at the olive grove. That's what it's called. And, and so Jesus knew this was a safe place. It was a place that he could go and that he could pray. And he could prepare for what lay ahead. Jesus knew Exactly, what the next day would would be. He knew what was about to take place. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, and the Old Testament scriptures they they they, they just declared it. It was like a schedule that had to be kept. Jesus understood the cup that he was about to 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 to, to take. He knew what it held, and so here in this this olive grove. There was a, an olive press. That's what Gethsemane means. It's, it's the place of the olive press. It's where they would, when they harvested the olives, they would bring them and they would press them with the stone and they would get the olive oil. And so there was a press there. And so Jesus goes to that Gethsemane. He goes to that place of the olive press because Jesus would embrace the mental, he would embrace the emotional, and he would embrace the physical torment just like olives were pressed. He would be pressed here in this place. Mark chapter 14, verse 32-34 tells us, And they came to a place named Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And then he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be very distressed, and troubled And he said to him, "My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Once Jesus gets to this place, he takes three, his inner circle, those that he was closest to. He leaves the others at a place, and then he takes Peter, James and John with him, and they go deeper into the garden. I don't know why. Other than when you know you face something that is beyond you, you want your closest friends with you. And so he takes Peter, James, and John with him. And they go a little deeper. And and Scripture tells us in, in just a few moments we'll get there, but Jesus eventually leaves them and he goes deeper. But jesus is is, is is scriptures very very vivid in these verses, and sometimes we read these verses and we miss the words, and we don't understand the words and and we don't pay attention to them, but it means he was he it says he was distressed. that word means he was amazed at what lay before him. A good word we would use is shocked. He was shocked at what he faced. He was in the grip of a shuddering horror at what he was about to encounter and the dreadful prospect that awaited him. What awaits him grips his mind, okay? It grips his his heart. It grips his soul. I mean, it's terrifying. He knows what he's about to face. There's no mystery. He, He knows what the Old Testament scriptures say. Folks, listen to me. We think about crucifixion, and for most Christians, okay? The only person they know who was crucified was Jesus. I want you to listen to me, okay? Whenever there was a rebellion, the Romans lined the roads with crosses for miles. They made examples of the people. They, they, they were brutal, they were repressive, they were awful. And so Jesus in his 33 years had probably seen crucifixion. He probably knew what it looked like. He had heard all the, the awful details of it because it was common in Palestine. The, the Jews were a rough, hard people to rule. Okay? Just read your Old Testament, even when they had their own kings, and when they had Moses, they were hard and stiff-necked. They hated the Romans. The Romans were pagans. They were idol worshippers. And here they, they had to bow before these Romans, and they had to serve these Romans, and so there was insurrection continuously. And so crucifixion was a very common And Jesus had seen it. He understood what took place when someone was crucified. He heard the stories. He had witnessed it, I'm sure, on many occasions. And now those sounds and those feelings and those emotions and those things that he had seen were playing in his head. Okay? They were going over and over and over. And torment filled his, his mind, and, and, and they filled his emotions. Je- scripture tells us that Jesus was troubled, meaning he was in anguish, meaning he was very, very upset. Now most people think Jesus was just meek and mild, and he was milk toast, and he just kind of, you know, he's like a jellyfish, he just rode the waves. That's not the, the Jesus Scripture paints, When he cleaned the temple out, he got angry. Okay? I've heard preachers say, now he made a whip, but he didn't hit anybody with it. Well, I'm going to tell you something, if you turn my table over with my gold coins that I eat and sleep off of and live off of, I'm going to get down on my hands and knees and grab them babies up. They didn't grab them up, they got out of there. Why? Because his wrath and his zeal for the, for the temple of God, for the house of God was so evident, they left because he is, he is mad, he's angry. Okay, He had emotions. When you, when you read the story of Lazarus Most of the time, all we get was Jesus is a little late and he's a little late on purpose and he's, he's there and, and, and death has come. But literally it says that Jesus, when he, when he heard Mary and Martha, literally it says he snorted like a horse. He was so angry. He wasn't angry at Mary and Martha. He was angry at death. Okay. He was angry at the things that were not in heaven. And that's the things that we ought to be angry at. And so when Jesus comes to this place, I mean, he is, he is he's upset. And G- J- Jesus describes the condition of his soul in the passage that we looked at is he was deeply grieved to the point of death. He was filled with excessive sorrow. He was being crushed. Don't miss where he's at okay? He's at the olive press, okay? He's in Gethsemane. He's not in some lush garden where there's all kind of flowers. He's in a place where they bring the olives, they dump them into a a stone basin and they roll a rock over them and over them and crush those. He's in a place of pressure and he's being crushed. Don't miss the picture that's there. And he, the grief that he's experiencing, it's more than a mental grief, okay? Although that, that would be unbelievable. It's more than a physical uh, grief. It's more than emotional grief about what he was about to suffer. It's also something he had never encountered before. It's a spiritual grief. It's a spiritual suffering. Jesus was about to have all the weight of our sin placed on him. He's about to be crushed by our sin. He who knew no sin is not just about to be crushed by sin, but he's about to become sin. The Holy One, the one who's who's never known sin is about not to just bear our sin, but become our sin. The Holy Spirit's going to have to communicate you exactly what that means, because I don't, I, I, I can't. I, I, that's, that's a step into that place I don't understand. Okay. And the aspect of that, the, the understanding of that, what that meant, is literally crushing the life out of Jesus. Luke twenty-two, verse forty-one tells us, and he withdrew from them. He withdrew from, from Peter. And James and John, about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray. Mark 14, 35 tells us that he, falls, he fell on the ground and began to pray. Jesus goes so far, and he leaves his three, the three closest people to him. And then he goes on a little farther. He leaves Peter, James, and John, and he probably goes 20 or 30 yards farther into the olive grove. And the reason he leaves them is because they can't go where he's going. They can't understand what he's about to suffer. What he has to do, he has to do alone. He has to do by himself. And so he tears himself Away from his friends and scripture says that, that he knelt down or that he fell on the ground literally what it, what in that day when someone prayed, they prayed standing up they, did, they didn't kneel down like we kneel down. they prayed standing up. literally the picture. Of what this text is painting, both of these texts is Jesus is standing there praying, and he, he just he falls on the ground, he begins to cry out, and he gets up and he falls on the ground, and he begins to cry out, and over and over and over, I mean he's staggering around and he's falling, and he, he gets up and, and, and it's just a, it's a picture of, of, of someone under extreme pressure and under extreme torment, and, and he, he prays this prayer. And we think he prayed it a couple of times, over and over and over. He prays this prayer. Luke twenty two forty two says, "Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but Thy will. Now I, listen. This is not a statement. This is not a prayer that pictures somebody struggling between what they 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 hope." won't take place this is not somebody that's reluctant this is not somebody uh, that that's that's having a struggle between doing what is supposed to be done and not doing it okay don't miss this Jesus is saying something completely different Jesus is declaring that this cup is so revolting this cup is so horrible this this thing that he's about to enter into is so beyond belief that only because, God, it's your will, am I willing to do it. Okay, there's no doubt Jesus is going to do it. It's just the horror of it that confronts. That's what he's wrestling with. He's not wrestling with the will of God. Folks, when he came, when he stepped into human form, he was committed. Okay? So he's not struggling with God... I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, please, 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 if there's any other way we can do this, let's do it that way. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God, only because this is your will am I willing to do it. Jesus is declaring that that that, that cup is so revolting, it's so horrible, that he's willing to drink it because it's God's will. Jesus is not asking God to change his mind. What he's saying is, God, I know this is your sovereign will that I do this, and I want this to be fully done. And as Jesus, I mean, Jesus is seeing. He's he's experiencing what's about to take place. He, he knows that Judas is betraying him. He, he can see that. He knows what he that's like. He, he knows that his disciples in just a few minutes. Every one of them. Not just Peter. See, we 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 read Peter, Peter's the one that denied Jesus three times. The other ones, they weren't there, okay? They were hiding somewhere else. At least Peter was there. But they all denied him. Jesus is experiencing the slaps and the punches and the scourging and the curse of being nailed on a tree. The Old Testament says Curses is the one who is nailed on a tree. Jesus is is going to experience being cursed of God because he's about to be crucified. He's he's experiencing the agony, folks, of of suffocation. That's what happened on the cross. You didn't die because your blood, uh, the nail holes caused your blood to run out. You didn't die because of that. You died because on the cross, they would, they, would, they would stretch out your arms. They, would, they didn't nail them in here, okay, because this won't hold you up. They nailed them in here. And by the way, they're all kind of nerves right here. And crucifixion was designed to exact the most pain possible. It was hundreds of years old in the making. So your nail there, they cross your feet, put one nail through there, your knees are bent, and there's a little seat you say well that, that's not too bad well if you sit on the seat you can't breathe and if you get off the seat all the pressure is on those points where the nails are and so to breathe you've got to raise yourself up and you can only stay there so long and then you drop back down Jesus is he, he's seeing that he's understanding that he, he knows what he's facing Add to that, he's going to become sin. The indescribable, utter filth of sin. And folks, I, I don't know this, but, but I believe this to be true. He could see it. He could taste it. He could hear it. He could smell it. He fills it with all his soul, and yet he prays, yet, Father, not, not, not my will, but thy will. I don't know whether you realize this or not, but great battles and great contests are often won in the mind before they are experienced in the field. The victory of salvation was really won in the mind of Christ in the garden. Because that's where he prepares himself for it. That's where he does the spiritual aspects of the battle. The battle for redemption was won there in that, in that corner of the garden on that big stone, on that rock. If you go to Jerusalem, don't miss going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Don't miss going in the Church of All Nations. Okay? Is it the place? I don't know. But it, it gives a picture to you. It burns one in your mind you'll never forget. Okay? Jesus is fighting a battle. Satan has unleashed the power of darkness against him. Everything that he has, he's firing. Everything that he has, he's hitting Jesus with. The battle is here. This is where Jesus is fighting the battle during this time. There's no one there beating on him, there's no one nailing nails through his hands or his feet, there's no spears, there's no slaps. There's just him and Satan and God. There's a battle being fought as he prays. He's up. He's down. He's prostrate on his face. He's up. He's down. I mean, he staggers here. He staggers there. He is fighting a battle. And the enemy is flooding his mind with everything that he can flood his mind with. He's flooding it with torment, with accusations, with condemnations, with questions, with taunts. You remember when 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 uh, Jesus was on the Mount of Temptation, you remember what, what Satan said three times, if you're the Son of God. Well, I guarantee you he was shouting that, if you're the Son of God, you wouldn't be in this situation. Why should you die? You're God. I mean, he's playing all kinds of games. And so Jesus, he's praying, he's wrestling. And then Luke chapter 22, verse 43 and 44 tells us, that now an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus strengthening him and being in agony he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down the ground luke paints us a picture of an angel that appears and and the language that he uses describes that of a uh, we would most how many of you have been watching basketball games i know i'm not by myself okay I'll be honest with you, if I had a dozen screens and could watch every one of them at the same time, I would, okay? But I can't. How many of you like football? You ever seen anybody get injured on the court or on the field? And a trainer rushes out there? That's the language that Luke uses of a trainer who's, who's come to assist an athlete, who's almost beat, who's almost whipped, who's, who's at the point of exhaustion. And that trainer comes and, 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 and gives him some, some water or Gatorade or whatever and, and, and refurbishes him and, re, and strengthens him. That's what God does in that moment. He sends an angel to encourage Jesus, to minister to his needs like a trainer would get an athlete ready to go. And 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 the father breathes strength into the son just as, as he had done when Jesus was on the mount of temptation if you remember an angel ministered to him there. And so Jesus is refreshed with strength and with power and continues to endure and he will endure listen to me he will endure to the end. And he will victoriously. They they don't take Jesus' life. Jesus gives his life. Okay? Now, if we're not careful we miss some things here. It says, and being in agony. that, That word agony pictures a struggle. It pictures hand-to-hand combat. It it pictures a conflict that's being fought. Jesus is fully engaged in a battle for the redemption of souls, folks. He's he's hand-to-hand. He's wrestling with with the spirits of darkness, with the forces of evil. He's in mortal hand-to-hand combat. And folks, it's winner-take-all. Okay? There's not going to be a tie. Listen to me, most spiritual battles are won in prayer before they ever take place in the natural. Jesus won the battle of the cross in the garden. In the garden. Jesus is praying with all the power that he can, he can muster. Now, we're familiar with this. In fact, we sang about this just a few minutes ago. Luke tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, that doesn't mean that he he was sweating these big, huge drops, okay? It means exactly what it says. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. Luke is the only one who talks about this. Luke, how many of you know what the profession of Luke was? He was a doctor. He was a a doctor. And so he uses some very technical language here. Jesus was sweating in such agony that tiny little clots of blood were oozing out of his forehead. And they were falling to the ground. Now, you say, well, how is that possible? Well, Luke was describing a very rare medical condition that that today would be called, I'm going to try this, okay, hematidrosis. Or hemohydrosis. And what that means is it's a condition that would occur, that still occurs, okay? There have been studies done on this. But there's a condition that occurs when there is tremendous stress on a person. And what happens is when that stress reaches a certain level, there are little tiny capillaries, little blood veins in your forehead that, that go around the sweat glands. And that are in, I guess they're in the sweat glands. And what happens is when this happens, is those those little tiny capillaries burst. And blood mixes with the sweat. And so Jesus is literally sweating blood. And he's not just just sweating blood, folks. What happens is, 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 is it's little clots of blood. And because Luke uses the word for clots. The Greek word we get—I mean, how many are you familiar with throm? I think it's thrombosis. Okay, that's the word he uses, and it describes these little clots of blood. It's just—it's pouring out of him. Luke was probably familiar with it. Luke had probably studied Aristotle. And Aristotle wrote about it, Five, uh, hundreds of years before Jesus. And so Luke describes it and, 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 and this condition like I said has been studied in modern times and it's, it's found to be it happens when there's an acute fear and by that I mean, I don't mean scared to death, you know that kind of thing, but by the fact that, that a horror is impending along with intense mental contemplation. So Jesus is literally sweating blood. I mean, it's, it's pouring out of his forehead. Now, here's my point, okay? You say, Nelson, why are you telling us all this stuff? I want you to know that Jesus is, re- is, is wrestling with the reality that he would take the guilt of all of our sins on himself and he would become sin for us. And in doing so, folks, God the Father turns away For a period on the cross, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, the fellowship that he had enjoyed from eternity past is broken. Because Scripture says that God can't look on sin. In fact, Psalms 22 verse 1, Jesus quotes on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every time I read that in the Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthana. My skin crawls. Okay? I can't I can't fathom what that means. I can't understand it, but he knows at that moment in the garden. He knows that he's going to endure a form of hell. He's going to endure our hell, folks our punishment. He's going to endure being separated from God and ultimately, that's what hell is. Yes, I believe that it's fire. Okay? It's a lake of fire. I believe that literally. I believe that there's going to be torment there. But God's not going to be there. There's going to be a separation. That's what happens when we die. We're separated from our body. The second death is a separation from God. That's what scripture teaches and so he he's he's going to endure the punishment all of us deserve and and the horror of that experience is beyond our our human comprehension because we forget yes jesus was 100% god but he's also 100% human he's man okay we forget the the humanity of him and what he what he suffers but literally he's going to endure these things as a man and he's going to become our sacrifice for sin. I love Isaiah chapter 53. And we've looked at this passage when we were, when we were talking about healing and uh, uh, reclaiming biblical healing. We, 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 we dug into this passage. But I, do, I just want to share what Scripture says in the Old Testament. Okay? Jesus knows these verses. In Isaiah 53, 4, it says, Surely our griefs, and that word can be translated our sicknesses, he himself bore. And our sorrows or or pains he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten, literally struck down by God and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Isaiah 53, 10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. Literally making him sick to the point of death. If he would render his soul as a gift offering. All this Jesus knew before he went to the cross. All this he fought and struggled for. He, he struggled for that victory before he's even arrested. Okay? There's nobody there prodding him. He, he's wrestling with, with what he faces. You know what? And I, and I say this I say this in humility, but I say this because too often we've made Gethsemane <coughs> more about disciples who couldn't <laughs> stay awake and pray. We, we've made it, we've majored on the three times Jesus comes back and confronts his sleeping soldiers. We, we, we've made it about a condition for those who don't pray long enough or hard enough. And, and listen, Gethsemane is not about apathetic disciples disciples. It's not about prayerless disciples. It's not about weak disciples. Gethsemane is about the agony of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Those men were just doing what any of us would have done. But it's not about that. It's about a Savior suffering for our sins. The passion of the Christ, the suffering of Jesus, began here in the dark recesses, in the dark shadows of Gethsemane, in an agony of spirit, in an agony of soul, and in an agony of body, of a Savior who was willing to satisfy God's righteous wrath. The battle is won in the shadows, in the darkness. It's one. You say, Nelson, how how do you know that? Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 45. Sometimes we read things and we glaze right over them. But the very first part of verse 45 alerts us to a change that takes place. It's a defining moment in the battle. Now, Now picture this. Jesus is grappling with the forces of evil. They are wrestling, okay, hand-to-hand. They're not doing that Channel 42 stuff or, or WWW stuff, okay? They're locked in mortal combat. And it says this, and when he rose from prayer, when he gets up, when the struggle is over, when the hand-to-hand combat is finished, the victor is the one who gets up. Let me say that again. When there's a wrestling, in, in that day when they wrestled, they wrestled to the death. And the only one that would get up was the one who had won the battle. And Scripture tells us that he rose up from prayer. Jesus stopped praying. He's not, answer, he's not asking anything any longer. Prayer time is finished. Why? Because this prayer has been answered. I want to encourage you with something this morning. Jesus is praying for you. Every prayer that Jesus has ever prayed or will ever pray gets answered. Let let that just tumble down through there. Okay? I love what he tells Peter. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. No, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I'll die for you, Lord. And what does Jesus say? Peter, I've prayed for you. And when you are strengthened, you will gather your brethren. I'm paraphrasing now. You'll gather your brethren back together and you'll go forward. You'll be the leader. I've already prayed for you. I know this is going to happen. I already know this. Peter, you're going to do this. Folks, why? How? Because he's not praying anymore. That work is finished. And the Bible says that he stands up, which is the, the position of the victor. Why? Because he's won. The victor stands, the vanquished, lies on the ground. There's a moment. I'll give Mel Gibson this, okay? There are moments in his movie where there are just beautiful symbolic pictures. One of them takes place in the garden. When Jesus steps on the serpent's head, you can hear the bones. I know this is graphic for some of you, but man, I want to jump up and start, yes! <laughs> Hallelujah! I want, to go, I want to have a come apart. You hear the bones in the snake's head just, okay? it's, just it's real quick. It's not, it's not some long drawn out thing. But folks, that's what took place that moment. The serpent bruised Jesus' heel. Jesus would endure that bruise the next day but he crushes the serpent's head. Folks, standing in biblical times was considered a sign of strength. And Jesus is the last one standing in the garden. And I want to encourage you today, and this is the last thing I have to say, he's still standing. Okay? He's still standing. He endured the agony in the garden to give us victory. So that we might stand with Him. Folks, let what He did permeate who you are. Don't beat yourself up. Well, I don't pray enough. I'm not like Jesus. I can't pray the blood flows out of my head. You don't need to. He did Maybe you don't pray 15 minutes or an hour. Maybe when you pray, it's a sentence or two here and there. Don't worry about that. It's not about how long you pray. This this story's not about prayerless disciples and sleeping disciples. This this story, this account is about a Savior who gives everything and who loves us enough to do that. And next week, we're going to look at the trials. We're going to look at the abuse Jesus endured. And we're going to look at the cross, okay? We're going to compress all of that in. I I don't know exactly when they arrest Jesus, but we're going to pick up at the next point when they come. And when they take him to Caiaphas and Annas' house. We'll talk about that. But this morning, folks, we've got a Savior who's standing. And he's standing because he has won the victory. He's fought the battle for you. For me. He didn't fight it for some group of people who are yet unnamed. He fought it for Nelson, for Jim, for 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 Kathy, for Hannah, for for for, for, for I, my mind's going Roseanne. I mean he, he fought it for you, okay? He fought it for you, Tammy, Becky for us. He fought it for you. And listen, if he was willing to do that he is willing to take care of you wherever you are right now. You don't have to worry. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to, to be anxious. He's already done the struggling. Okay? He's already faced the stress. And folks, out of that stress, you remember what he told his disciples? God just showed me this, so I'm going to work through this real quick and we're done. You remember what he told them over and over and over while they're enjoying the Passover and, and commenced? He says, my peace I leave with you. Not the kind of peace the world gives you my peace. Let your hearts not be troubled. You believe in in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. That's peace. That's peace. Not worrying. Not stressed out. I, I can be anxious a little bit. I can be concerned a little bit about what tomorrow holds. But you know what? I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to stress about it. I don't have to make myself sick over it. Because Jesus is already there. He's already been there. And he's already prepared it so that I can walk through it. And when the time comes, he'll get me. Whether that's today, tomorrow, or 50 years from now. Folks, Jesus loved us that much. He not only gave us eternal peace, he gives us present peace. Present peace. Let's pray for for more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.